For centuries, fox hunting has been a national institution. Horses hunting pink, packs of baying hounds, all part of a great English tradition. But this is fox hunting with a difference. No horses, no hounds, just a group of men with guns. No rolling countryside, but the streets and gardens of an ordinary suburb. The town-dwelling fox is a new problem, but the threat he carries in his tracks is one of the oldest and deadliest diseases known to mankind, an affliction that imposes a lingering and horrifying death on all its victims, human and animal alike, the terrible madness of rabies. It was brought to my notice that one of the hounds appeared ill-humoured. No food would tempt it. The very sight of water introduced a horrendous rage dreadful to behold. The animal's limbs were seized with a terrible ague. By today forenoon, its fury had surpassed all limits, with dripping fangs and eyes rolling in the depths of its madness. Twenty minutes since, it seized upon a cat and left the wretched animal grievous wounded. At this very moment, rabies is on the move, advancing steadily and threateningly across Europe at a rate of 25 miles each year. Mad dogs have always been traditionally blamed for spreading rabies, but today the danger comes from the wild foxes. During the last 40 years, their numbers have been steadily increasing, partly because the fox's traditional enemy, the wolf, has been almost eliminated. Partly it's due to the ban on fox hunting during the war years and partly to the change in fashions which have lessened the demand for fox fur. The present outbreak began in 1939 in what was then the Polish Corridor. By 1950 it had crossed the River Elbe. Ten years later it finally succeeded in crossing the Rhine. By 1967 it reached Belgium and Luxembourg and the following year it entered France. Professor Pierre Audouin of the Institut Pasteur where Louis Pasteur himself began the first scientific campaign against rabies in the 1880s, describes the extent of the outbreak in his country. The situation from 1968, when it started in France, from Belgium and from Germany, uh, we have now recorded around 10,000 cases of rabies in animals. Now there is 20 departments infected with rabies, wildlife rabies. We are mainly concerned right now because the rabies is at less than 50 kilometers from Paris in the forest of Compiègne and uh, the nearest we diagnosed recently was in the forest of Chantilly which is less than 50 kilometers from Paris and near the big airport of Roissy. At this rate, the disease will soon reach the Channel Coast. Already we've been hearing of unconfirmed cases near French ports. Can it be long before it appears here in Britain? We asked some of those in the front line of defence what they feel about this threat. Andrew Semple, Port Medical Officer for Liverpool. This disease had been advancing across Europe uh, towards the west at about 25 miles annually and this country, in spite of the Channel Barrier, is at risk in my view. Veterinary surgeon Dr Peter Bedford. Well, the threat to this country is one of an immediate risk, the entry of the disease into the country is literally just a step away. It only needs a careless action to bring in an infected animal. It's as easy as that, the introduction of rabies now presently from the continent. And government vet Edward Westcott. I don't think I'm putting it too alarmingly, but there's very few amongst us in the state veterinary service who feel 
that uh, we won't get rabies. I think it's not a question as, as if we get rabies, it's a question of when we get rabies, and we fully expect it any time. But what exactly are we being threatened with? What is rabies, and what are its terrible effects? After the victim has been bitten, scratched, or even licked by an infected animal, usually a cat or dog, the symptoms may appear in as little as ten days, or as long as two years. Or they may not appear at all. The first signs of illness are usually fever, aching limbs, headaches, and a terrible feeling of foreboding. Muscles become paralysed. The victim finds difficulty in breathing and swallowing, and becomes terrified of drowning in his own saliva. His body is racked by violent spasms whenever he tries to drink. Sometimes even the sight of water brings on an attack. Eventually the convulsions grow worse. Finally, breathing and heartbeat stop, and in nearly every case, death comes as a welcome release. The horror is heightened for many sufferers because they know exactly what is happening to them. In 1735, the Gentleman's Magazine told of a Bedfordshire farmer named William Jones who developed rabies six weeks after being bitten on the nose by a mad dog. Said the magazine, He retained the use of his intellects, except by intervals, to the last, and was so sensible of his approaching end that he desired, but a few hours before he died, he might be chained down to prevent his biting or hurting anybody. Truly a terrible disease. So terrible that in ancient times patients were often suffocated to spare them additional agony. Others were thrown into deep water in a desperate attempt to force them to take in fluids. Dr David Tyrrell of the Clinical Research Centre at London's Northwick Park Hospital explains how the virus does its work. The rabies virus is a very strange and very interesting virus. First of all, it's transmitted by animal bites. Animals got the rabies virus in its saliva, its spittle, it bites. And then the virus may hang around for rather a long time. We don't know quite what happens to it, but it slowly apparently crawls up the nerves until it finally reaches the brain. And then suddenly it may do a tremendous amount of damage. It may make the brain very irritable in some ways. People feel tinglings and so on which aren't there. They have convulsions, they're twitchings and movements like that. The, the well-known symptom of hydrophobia means their throat goes into a sort of spasm when they just see some water. They may also paralyse, so that uh, particularly in animals, legs and arms become paralysed, and after a rather surprisingly long period of time sometimes, eventually the animal dies. It's interesting that this is, if you look at it from the virus's point of view, a rather clever thing to do, because as the virus can apparently only get from one animal or one human being to another by being bitten into the skin in the way I've described, then it can't do it unless the sick animal sort of goes wild and runs around and you may have seen uh, photographs of a dog, for instance, wildly attacking a stick or a piece of something that's quite dead or a human being or another animal. And there are pictures of bats in America biting each other for things that bats don't ordinarily do. But the virus is using this means, so to speak, for getting from one animal to another. We can be thankful that French foxes cannot bite British foxes because of the channel barrier. Migrating birds don't seem to carry the disease, and long-distance flying by bats is limited to North America. Strict quarantine has kept rabies out of Britain. How, then, could an infected animal find a chink in our armour which might let in the present European epidemic? Professor Semple. The most likely way is by some infected pet 
finding its way into this country. Now, the great danger, of course, is the smuggled animal. People are so fond of their pets, they just don't want to face the quarantine rules in this country. And because of that, the animals are smuggled. But there are other dangers, and that is that there's many ships, particularly ships with uh, bulk cargoes passing between the continent and here. Many of these ships carry dogs. And captains, particularly continental captains, are notoriously careless at letting their dogs come ashore. And, of course, this dog could readily be infected. And uh, although we have power under the Public Health Acts to prosecute, uh, often people don't realise the seriousness. The third thing, of course, is the, the weekend yachtsman who takes his dog to a continental port or even somewhere inland in the continent and then brings the dog back here, having had contact with... a potentially rabid animals in the continent. And these are the three ways that I think smuggling most important. Secondly, the careless ship's captain with a dog on board his ship. And thirdly, the weekend yachtsman. In many ways, smuggling animals into Britain is easier now than it's ever been. Increasing demand produces easier travel. Drive-on, drive-off car ferries, hovercraft services, train ferries. All bring Europe within an hour or two of Britain. And coping with this enormous traffic makes any kind of check more difficult, especially at our busiest ports. Last year alone, more than a million cars, a quarter of a million lorries and seven million passengers passed through the Channel port of Dover for destinations all over Britain. This creates a grave problem for the Chief Inspector of Animal Diseases in Kent, Frederick Hawkins. The weak point is the necessity for the use of a green lane system by... Her Majesty's Customs. They must use a green lane system because of the sheer volume of traffic. The port would close up and ships would block the channel waiting to get into the port otherwise. A person who has nothing to declare can drive a vehicle straight through the green lane system and according to the volume of traffic a percentage of those vehicles are stopped. So would these smugglers have a good chance of driving straight through and evading customs checks altogether? It seems the answer's yes, but not all of them escape entirely. In one case, a Swiss girl was found by the police at Bournemouth to be in possession of a black-and-white sheepdog, which she had brought through the Green Lane into the country without a licence. In another case, a police officer found a dog tied to the bumper of a TIR lorry in a market in Birmingham. This too had been brought through the port without detection. Another case arose where, to the surprise of an attendant at a fuel station, a TIR lorry was found with a gibbon sitting in the cab. As the lorry pulled away, the attendant, thinking this was rather odd, reported the matter to the police and on stopping the TIR vehicle the police found that this driver had brought the gibbon in with him hidden in the front of the vehicle. A, a case in point occurred on the motorway where a driver saw a vehicle with foreign registration marks in front and a dog leaping about on the back seat it seemed to him that the vehicle might have come off the boat and he reported the matter. It was checked by the police and found that this was another case of a vehicle coming through the green lane without the animal being detected.
It's easy to feel counties like Kent are more at risk, but cases like these show how rabid animals could appear anywhere in Britain. Airports, too, are dangerously vulnerable. London Airport carries seven times as much animal traffic as Dover. Is there a smuggling problem here, too? Neville Whitaker, manager of the RSPCA's animal hostel at Heathrow, faces a similar situation. From what I see from the airport side of it, that it is the passenger or person trying to enter the country legally, with, well, bringing the animal illegally into Britain. There are various ways of anaesthetising the animal, particularly the smaller ones. We had a case of the uh, chihuahua that was put into a shoebox to try and get them in there. In another case, a lady came in and uh, she was a bit bulky around the midriff and she was asked if she'd mind going for a search. And the husband said, well, my wife was expecting a baby, and, uh, but they still insisted on this search and she had a cat draped round underneath her dress when she tried to get into the country. We've had cases where the animals have been in the hotels close to the airport, they've got through, and only by the fact that they've been trying to get them out of the country again that they've been spotted, and uh, you know, they've been in this country for a number of days or, or hours, in fact. Neville Whitaker and his hostel staff are right in the front line, handling all kinds of animals from every part of the world, whether they're due to fly on somewhere else or whether they're heading for quarantine in Britain. The risks of rabies infection here are high indeed. We had a case of a, a baby leopard came through. A leopard cub was being bottle-fed here, went to, to a zoo in England and uh, died a fortnight later and uh, rabies was confirmed with this animal. The staff here had to go on the crash course of the anti-rabies injections, which are, as probably everybody knows, are a very, very terrible thing. And the girls had those and uh, the injections in the stomachs. So there was a case of an innocent little uh, leopard cub coming through and infected when it arrived here. So it just shows you how many pass through that we don't know have had the rabies. I mean, being a transit station like we are, a lot of them going through to other countries and we never have the true figures of how many entered with rabies. All the same, the greatest danger for Britain as a whole remains the domestic pet, deliberately smuggled in from abroad. Why do owners take these risks? Partly it's a question of money, for keeping an animal in quarantine for six months can be very expensive. Partly it's to avoid being separated from a much-loved pet. Bringing an unlicensed animal into Britain can mean a heavy fine, but clearly people are willing to try. In the four years up to 1971, 37 was the number of cases actually discovered. Now traffic is heavier, quarantine charges are higher, and smuggling is easier. How can we possibly stop it happening? Professor Semple. I think we must sort of have stronger checks at the ports. This is a very difficult thing to do because, of course, many uh, of these little harbours, yacht harbours, and many of the harbours that uh, the small ships carrying vegetables and other things from the continent come into are very small. But I think we've got to strengthen our uh, surveillance at these ports. The second thing is I think we should have everywhere where there's any likelihood of any contact with continental transport, shipping, lorries or anything else, we should have notices up how important this is that no animals should be brought across from the continent to this country. Last week, the Ministry of Agriculture announced a £50,000 publicity campaign in Britain and overseas, alerting people to the perils and penalties of smuggling animals. Jim Threlkeld, a regional officer of the State Veterinary Service, feels the deterrent is already strong enough. As far as penalties for illegal landing is concerned, magistrates now have pretty high awards which they can give for this type of offence. 
In a magistrate's court, an offender can be fined up to £400. The local authority have powers to destroy the dog or cat if we can't find any other way of dealing with it. If the offence is a deliberate one, that is, the uh, smuggler has made a deliberate attempt to bring the animal in by hiding it or, or having it concealed in some way, the magistrate is then free to indict the offender to a higher court where the penalties are then raised to an unlimited fine and the likelihood of up to one year's imprisonment. These penalties in both courts are quite high and uh, all that it requires is for the judiciary to apply them to the full and I'm sure the effect of this to dissuade people from breaking these regulations would be quite high. Whatever the penalties, no anti-smuggling policy can ever be totally effective without paralysing the ports and airports altogether. Some animals will always get through. They may seem completely normal. The weekend yachtsman's cat may jump ashore in a French port for a matter of minutes, but the damage is done. Even this animal has to go through six months quarantine before it can return home. It may be infected with rabies. But what happens if one of these animals does get through and brings the disease with it? Dr Bedford. Once the disease has got into the country in an infected animal, there is one of three things that could happen. Firstly, that animal could be picked up, and that would be the end of the problem. But that animal may not be picked up, and in fact it may infect other domestic animals. If it were a dog, other dogs. If it were a cat, other cats. The third thing that could happen is that the disease could break from the domestic pet situation into the wildlife and then that really does become a very serious problem because one has the creation of, of a reservoir, a sylvatic reservoir of virus disease and it's from that reservoir that, that the disease can break back into the domestic pet. For centuries, man's clearest picture of the rabies threat has centred on the mad dog running wild, foaming at the mouth and biting everyone in its path. Professor Ardouin feels this spectre may be out of date. If you are introducing a rabid dog in your country, it doesn't matter too, too much. The exposed people will be reduced. But if you introduce a, a rabid cat in your country, there, the cat is wandering around usually, this is usual for a cat, and it can fight very well with a wild fox, is what's happened in France. And then you will get wildlife rabies in your country. Cats and dogs are the most immediate danger for bringing rabies into Britain and for directly infecting human beings. But it's the fox that presents the deadliest threat in the long term. Once rabies reaches our wildlife, as it has in Europe, it may become impossible to stamp out. The only hope of holding it in check is to decimate the fox population. Cut their numbers down far enough, says the theory, and you reduce the chances of a rabid fox finding another fox to bite and to pass on the infection. But first, we need a lot more information about foxes and their habits. Gwyn Lloyd is a principal scientific officer for the Ministry of Agriculture. He traps foxes, fits them with transmitters, and then trails them by radio. Our aim is to learn more about the movements of foxes, both their diurnal and nocturnal movements, and their home range sizes, and in particular their dispersal movement from their places of birth to where they finally settle down as adults in order to gain some understanding of the size of the area over which we would need to uh, eliminate foxes in the event of a wildlife rabies occurrence in Britain. Um, there are about 12 foxes with uh, transmitters attached at the present time. We monitor their movements by using two radio receivers simultaneously 
and by getting a bearing, a compass bearing, on the position of the fox in two places by triangulation, we can pinpoint its position. We have picked up foxes 18 miles away, but in other circumstances, if the fox is lying behind that hill there, for example, only half a mile away, then the signal would disappear. So a lot depends upon the type of country over which we're operating the work. Each fox has its uh, own wavelength. We can identify them by the repetition rate of the bleeps and also by the wavelength on which the fox's uh, transmitter happens to be. I'll switch on into this channel here where I expect to find a fox. I don't know if he's going to be there. No, not at the moment. Probably on the other side of the hill. Oh, here's one now. This one is called Charlie. He's not moving at the present time. The signal is very steady. But it seems as if we are getting nearer to it. Charlie Fox and his friends, closely followed by Gwyn Lloyd, roam the lonely Welsh hills. But what about their town-dwelling cousins, hunting and fighting the neighbourhood tabbies in our very doorsteps? Professor Semple. One's got to remember that foxes are more and more becoming urban scavengers, and in Liverpool here we've got housing estates in many places, and the dock area we've got packs of stray dogs who are ranging the, the town and terrorising many people. I have a colleague who they, on Friday told me that he was afraid to go into a particular block of multi-storey housing because of several dogs who were obviously threatening to attack him if he tried to go to see a patient there. This could be a very serious situation, even in an urban area like this. This is the crux of the problem. Any sign of rabies among the foxes and the packs of stray animals in our towns and cities would be the next link in the chain. What could be done to stop this from happening? Two things. First of all, there would be the policy of area slaughter and particularly a surveillance and I would even go as far as to say any dogs that were likely to be suspect ought to be put down even if they were pets and certainly all dogs being muzzled and also vaccinated with a potent vaccine. We would have to accept compulsory vaccination of all pets it would greatly interfere with scientific endeavours where animals are used for various experiments and it would certainly mean that parents would be very worried if their children got bitten by a dog. The other thing to remember is that cats commonly spread the disease and in fact some recent figures have shown that there have been more cases of rabies have occurred as a result of cat bites and scratches than from actually rabid dogs. So, with dangers like these, have we any hope at all of being able to stamp out a serious outbreak of rabies in our wildlife? Dr Bedford. Once disease is in the wildlife, it's going to take something in the way of measures that we really don't know too much about at the moment. One has heard about the trapping of animals, the shooting of animals, the gassing of animals. All these are not terribly effective. And I think it needs, really opinion directed um, into ways of successfully controlling wildlife. Until we know more, the best hope still lies in controlling the initial outbreak. Jim Throkeld is guardedly hopeful. Rabies, if it does come to this country, is most likely to have been brought here by a smuggled animal, by an illegally landed animal. The disease would therefore break out at a single focus and provided 
it was suspected early enough, we would begin to operate against the disease at a single point rather than on a long frontier, as is in the case of France, which is some thousand kilometres long. For that reason, our chances of success in containing the disease would be much greater. Certainly, this was the pattern in Britain's last case of animal rabies, which occurred at Camberley in Surrey in 1969. This was caused by a dog called Fritz, who was infected when it returned from the quarantine kennels. For Peter Matthews, chief constable of the Surrey police, it was totally unexpected. The first rabies outbreak in Britain for 40 years. Well, this was a case of a dog that was brought back by the owners from Germany. It was brought back through uh, Dover and was taken into quarantine immediately when it arrived in this country. It spent six months in quarantine and it came out on the 4th of October. About six days later, the dog slid underneath the bed and howled and then two days later... He ate very little food and refused to drink, and the next day he seemed very excitable and became aggressive. And then on the 14th he was led out in the back garden and he appeared to be having difficulty with certain things. And then he killed a cat and he bit a milkman's foot and then disappeared. Sometime later he was seen getting into a, a cab full of schoolchildren and the dog by now appeared completely mad. By now the symptoms were obvious to Fritz's owner, Mrs Hemsley. She spotted him jumping into the children's car and realised the danger they were in. She grabbed the dog and forced its head down onto the pavement. One passerby took no notice of her call for help, but an army officer cycling past went to get some string and together they tied Fritz's muzzle. Mrs Hemsley had been bitten, but she managed to struggle home with the dog. Edward Westcott, veterinary officer of the Surrey Division of the Ministry of Agriculture, was called out to inspect Fritz. He found that Hemsley's next-door neighbour, an army vet, had locked him in the safest place he could find. The dog was shut up in the downstairs lavatory of the Hemsley's house and it was impossible indeed to see this dog because uh, it was barking away inside this rather small closet and to open the door at this point would have made it possible for the dog to escape. The only way for me to see it was in fact to go outside and climb up the drain pipe and look through the small hopper window at the dog. This had been preceded by what I consider a very noble action by the owner, Mrs Hemsley, who, having experienced previously of rabies in India, had herself decided as a result of the action of that dog over the last day that the dog had rabies and it had disappeared and she had gone out with the sole intention of catching the dog because she had suspected rabies, and if you remember at the time, she found it getting into a taxi load of children, and she spared no effort and actually caught the dog, and in doing so and holding it, she got bitten. She exposed herself to risk, and I'm very pleased to say that subsequently this act of gallantry was indeed recognised. This, to me, was, was the outstanding feature of the whole incident, really, that we were extremely lucky in the circumstances that it happened in a dog with an owner who was so responsible. And if she hadn't acted in this way, there's no telling how far it might have gone. The only really sure way of diagnosing rabies is to examine the animal's brain after death. And this is the only way to decide quickly whether or not human victims may be infected. Just one ray of hope remains. Since the disease takes a long time to develop, it's possible to vaccinate patients after they've been bitten. Up to now, this has been painful, 
with a series of more than 14 injections into the skin of the stomach and the chances of severe and sometimes dangerous side effects. Vaccination is far from infallible, and it adds another burden to those who know they may have caught the disease. So far, this has been the only possible treatment available, but recently there have been hopes for something better. Dr David Tyrrell outlines the long search for a reliable vaccine. Of course, it's a matter of medical history that uh, Louis Pasteur invented vaccination against rabies, first of all for animals, and then he used it uh, on a child and uh, saved his life, apparently. And uh, in those days, he, he made his vaccines from the brains of animals who'd been infected with, with rabies. And it's extraordinarily but true that probably most rabies vaccines still used in the world is made basically from the brains of animals infected with rabies. Some progress has been made since the days of Pasteur. For instance, now uh, we don't use vaccines with living virus in. They're, they're all killed. The vaccines made from brains are, are always uh, rather dangerous to use because um, they contain uh, substances which actually raise immunity against the patient's brain. So he gets an encephalitis due to the vaccine, even if he doesn't get it due to the rabies. There have been ways of getting around this, and uh, one of them is to use uh, the brains of baby animals, which don't produce this, or at least they don't produce it so freely, and they're therefore much safer. In this country, and in the United States, for some years we've been using vaccine made from duck embryos, which has even less brain tissue in it, and is even safer from that point of view. Unfortunately, it's not very potent. And it still contains a great deal of what one can only describe as rubbish, uh, and which makes the place where the vaccine is put extremely sore, often gives rise to allergic reactions, so the patient gets high fever, they get hives, and it really makes them quite ill. So, by and large, all these vaccines are unsatisfactory and well below the standards of vaccines which we use for other things, like measles and so on. And... Uh, in the last couple of decades, people have thought of making the virus in tissue cultures. And uh, due to some collaborative work between the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia and the World Health Organization, the techniques have been developed for growing rabies virus in human cells, in culture, that is, growing on the inside surface of a glass bottle. Now, the result of growing it is that there's virus in the fluid in the bottle and there's really very little else. The virus can be concentrated and then it can be killed and then one can give this as an injection. And this is called human diploid cell vaccine because of the fact it comes from human cells and these cells are so-called diploid cells. In other words, they're completely normal human cells. Well, when you give this sort of vaccine, there's practically no pain or discomfort where the vaccine's put into the skin or under the skin, and there's so much viral material in it that you get very rapid and high uh, amounts of antibody. And uh, unlike, uh, for instance, the duck embryo vaccine, which only produces uh, a good antibody response in about 80% of people, everybody gets a good antibody response to the new vaccines. They're still in the process of being tested out. We've tested some in Britain. 
the vaccine manufactured in France by the Institut Meria in Lyon. And uh, <clears throat> we've found that if you give this, uh, even one or two doses will produce large amounts of antibody and that it's an excellent way of protecting people against the risk of rabies if their job gives them a chance of being exposed. For instance, people who look after imported animals, monkeys in laboratories, dogs in quarantine kennels and so on. And so we're now moving on to seeing whether it can be used for vaccination after exposure. You see, there's something really rather strange and special about rabies as a virus disease. Ordinarily, when we get infected with a virus, we don't know when or whether it's happened. But with rabies, uh, one very often does. And uh, the remarkable thing about rabies is that provided you start vaccinating uh, soon after the virus is injected, so to speak, in the bite, then you can, in fact, prevent people getting the full-blown disease. So it would be very valuable if we could uh, use these new vaccines to prevent disease in people who had been exposed and do it without the 14 injections and all the pain and rashes and so on which one gets if you use the present regime. The shortcomings of these present vaccines have led American doctors to try another idea. This is to use every modern aid to intensive care to nurse a victim through the illness, keeping him alive while his body builds up resistance to the virus. Last year, two British patients came back from abroad suffering from rabies. They were given intensive care because it was too late for vaccines to have much effect. Both men died. Dr Keith Sykes is a member of the World Health Organization Expert Committee on Rabies. And on the line from America, he recalls that with this method, there has so far been one success and one only. The experience that Dr. Hadwick, who did this work in the United States with a child in Lima, Ohio, in which the boy was given intensive care and the, the boy did indeed recover and is uh, getting along fine now, indicates that if you do get a person who has good integrity of his chest, his lungs, heart, and does indeed have good uh, electroencephalogram, uh, brain integrity, that this person would be a good candidate to give intensive care and expect, in some cases, to, to have the patient recover. So that does look good. But this is just one case in rather special circumstances. For the time being, the Americans have had to keep the disease at a distance by regular and compulsory vaccination of all their domestic animals. Even so, rabiphobia, a person's morbid fear of contracting rabies, is becoming almost as big a problem in America as rabies itself. For us in Britain, rabies would mean a total change in our way of life. Every contact with animals would be tainted with fear, every scratch or bite a possible prelude to painful injections and weeks of agonising uncertainty. Everyone who owns a pet or who enjoys a walk in the countryside would be facing a new danger, demanding new precautions. Dr Bedford. The harsh reality of rabies means that it's going to involve the destruction of animals, pets and wild animals alike at times. The control orders don't automatically prescribe the destruction of animals as the most direct 
method of control, but, but of course provisions for destruction are involved in that order. And of course there are those people who value animal life way above the practical approach that's necessary in dealing with this disease. It's probably very easy for me to sit here and say that in the, the cold light of evening, but if you're an owner with a pet and you're faced with the possible destruction of that pet, it can be a very difficult decision to make. Um, I think one has to consider this, and I think that it's essential, therefore, that people do realise the problem of rabies, just what rabies means, not only in terms of, of death to human beings, but death to, to other animals. People must realise that, and then perhaps it would be easier to accept a decision about your pet's future. Let's face it, there are going to be all sorts of restrictions. Taking the dog out for a walk at night time is simply not going to be taking the dog out for a walk at night time unless it's on a lead and unless it's muzzled. Uh, taking the cat to see Granny is going to be impossible. Animals are not going to be allowed to move in and out of infected areas. Our whole approach to the way we look after our pet animals will have to change. And those changes in infected areas are, of course, enforced by law, and there may be people who, who would regard these as being intrusions into their lives that, that, are, that are simply too great to bear. Luckily, that harsh reality is something we in Britain haven't had to face for almost the whole of this century. But rabies, with all its attendant horrors, is only a hundred miles away from our shores, and month by month it's drawing closer. All it takes is one smuggler, not a criminal, but an ordinary citizen, unwilling to part from his pet for six months after a trip abroad. Yet his self-indulgence could have appalling consequences. If his pet did indeed have rabies, he or his children would probably be the first victims, and he might be responsible for the destruction of wildlife and bring misery and perhaps tragedy to many other families. For centuries, the rabies virus has been one of man's deadliest enemies, and for the past 50 years our island has been a fortress against infection. We're more vulnerable now. All the rabies virus needs to carry it across the channel is a willing human accomplice. I think it's not a question as, as if we get rabies, it's a question of when we get rabies, and we fully expect it any time. Ah! <laughs>